Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. How's the writing going? Not so well. I keep hearing something. Schopenhauer measured a man's intelligence against his sensitivity to noise. You know, these clips are always so loud in my headphones. I know you don't have that problem, do you, Josh? <laughs> no, not a problem for me. We've got a reference to a 19th century German philosopher in a trailer. You know what that means. It's prestige movie season. Schopenhauer, come on. That's from the trailer for Tar from director Todd Field, starring Kate Blanchett as an acclaimed composer and conductor. And speaking of acclaimed, Tar may be the best-received film to come out of the fall festival season. It opens this weekend, and we've got a review. Plus thoughts on David O. Russell's period ensemble comedy Amsterdam. That and more. Not quite as acclaimed. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Like the best of Chaplin's work, David O. Russell's star-crammed historical fantasy brims with both exuberance and rage. When Sam shared that with me in our Film Spotting Slack earlier today, I was praying, Josh, that those were your words. They were not. Mm, I could only wish. <laughs> Instead, the words of The New Yorker's Richard Brody, even more a noted contrarian than one Josh Larson. He's not going to join us for our review of David O. Russell's Amsterdam with its cast of thousands. Unfortunately, you know, I had Brody's back with Don't Worry, Darling. We were together on that yeah. one. I should probably say he had my back. But yeah, this time, I'm afraid it's not going to work. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. First, though, a movie that has plenty of talent, but only one true star, which is more than enough. If you're here, then you already know who she is. Lydia Tarr is many things. 
As a conductor, Tarr began her career with the Cleveland Orchestra, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, until she had last arrived here at our own New York Philharmonic. In 2013, Berlin elected Tarr as its principal conductor, and she's remained there ever since. Lydia Tarr has also written music for the stage and screen. She is one of only 15 EGOTs, meaning those who have won all four major entertainment awards. Thank you for joining us, Maestro. Thank you. The sizable gap between 2006's Little Children and Todd Field's latest wasn't marked by isolation and unproductivity. There was plenty of artistic output, according to an August 30 New York Times profile, just nothing that made it to any screens. It still would be fair to propose, however, that Field is enigmatic. Unlike his prolific, attention-welcoming, unapologetically didactic protagonist Lydia Tarr, the conductor of an acclaimed orchestra in Berlin, Field eschews the spotlight and, while not prickly or standoffish, generally gives off the vibe in the few interviews that I've heard that he would rather be doing almost anything else in the world than talking about himself and his movie. Or, more specifically, talking about his choices. Hosts and moderators, all properly, nobly probing, inevitably inquire about intent. Why this? Why that? What did you want the audience to think? What did you want the audience to feel? And the dead air dotted with ums and ahs that meets those queries suggests the field only in a moment of severe weakness might reply, I did it because that's how I did it. Figure it out for yourself. Tell me what you think it means. What are we to make of Tar, the movie and the character? The Times author, Kyle Buchanan, warns us to, quote, expect robust conversations to follow about the way tar intersects with hot-button issues like identity politics and cancel culture, unquote. And I can imagine an uncharitable reaction to the film that goes something like this. A highbrow troll job in which field attacks our capacity and appetite for quick condemnations and dismissals of great artists for their bad behavior. Instead of a revered, privileged straight man who uses his status to prey on younger women emotionally and psychologically or sexually or all of the above, Field attempts to confound by throwing at us a revered, privileged lesbian who uses her status to prey on younger women. Although not so disparate in age, it's implied that Lydia may have groomed or at least used for political gain her now partner, Sharon, the orchestra's first violinist played by the brilliant German actress Nina Haas. She's stringing along her assistant, Francesca, an aspiring conductor and composer herself, portrayed by a portrait of a lady on fire's Noemi Merlant. Early on, we see a jilted ex-student stalking Lydia on a publicity trip to New York, her increasingly frantic messages indicating a precarious mental state with the potential for self-harm. And there's a new orchestra member, the still precocious but supremely talented Russian cellist Olga, played by actual cellist but not actual Russian Sophie Kaur. Lydia just can't stop herself. She wants something. She gets it. A destructive desire rooted in the same ambition and impulses that have made her worthy of an extended, perhaps slightly peculiar but bold, opening sit-down in which the New Yorker's Adam Gopnik introduces her by listing seemingly every single one of her remarkable credits and achievements. Regardless of how warmly one reacts to this film, Josh, I think Field is proven with both the little children and his debut in the bedroom to be a highly sensitive and thoughtful filmmaker. He didn't come back from a 16-year hiatus and collaborate with someone so prodigious as Blanchett to poke at social media and push a few buttons. 
So since I can't ask him and wouldn't dare, even if he was in front of me, I'll ask you, why did he make tar? What was his intent? Never an easy question with art and even more challenging with a film as willfully ambiguous as this one is. Did that ambiguity put you off or did you find it as rousing as Lydia's rendering of Mahler's fifth? It's very smart and incredibly rich. And the things that you're touching on here in this setup for me were just one aspect of the film. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the gender politics, the identity politics, the cancel culture, that sort of stuff. It's an interesting aspect and it kicks off a lot of the action as much as there is the narrative, I should say, uh, I first of all, it sounds like Todd Field is a director after my own heart, wanting to leave it up to us and not mm -hmm. not pronounce to people in Q and A is what he meant. That's great. Love to hear that. So let's do it. I'll say I reacted this way to his choice of putting a woman in this lead, a character and an arc that I think we would naturally associate with a powerful older white man. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting choice. And the way it registered to me, the negative review that you described, I'm sure is going to be out there that this is a screed against cancel culture. I think that would be a misreading. I think there's a lot of evidence that that would be a misreading. I'm sure that um, will be out there, but the way this choice registered to me was a couple of ways. And maybe my own biases are at play here, but, I think it engendered some natural sympathy at the start on my part for Lydia that would not have been there if this had been, say, as I described, some 60-something white male, okay, mm -hmm. straight white male. Already, I'm intrigued for someone who is coming at this from a different perspective as a woman, as a lesbian, different experiences. That changes the narrative in a way that brought a little more sympathy for me. Now, the second thing that it did, and this is where I think the movie gets more towards what I think the movie is very much interested in. It focuses the conversation away from gender, not that gender doesn't apply, but to the root of a lot of these issues when it comes to um, the question of the Me Too movement and similar things we've been thinking about and wrestling with um, in recent years in particular, it focuses it more on power. And it makes us question if there's a root evil here, <laughs> it's power. And it happens to be that in the history of society and music, as we learn, as we learn here about, you know, how the music world is set up, that power was held by white men, straight white men. And in this case, it's not. So that kind of strips the gender out of it and makes us look bare in the face and ask when there's an incredibly talented person who in some ways earns the right to mm -hmm. be as flippant as Lydia is with everyone in her life because she sees, and she answers this in her own Q&A, right? What her purpose is as a conductor. It's to keep time. And what does she say? That's no small thing. She sees herself as as almost leading more of a marching band, only it's not just the instrumentalists, it's also the people in the audience, and she is taking them to musical nirvana. And what they need to do to appreciate that higher experience is to follow her temple, follow the time that she sets, the time that she creates. And if anyone, for whatever reason, cannot keep up in step and they fall away, oh, well, that's 
their loss. Mm -hmm. That's a cost that just comes with what she will be providing. And all of that, yes, gender comes into play. Sexual identity comes into play. Absolutely. We'll see that in the intricacies of each relationship that we learn about in this movie. But essentially, it's a matter of power. Lydia's gotten to a point where she holds this power. And what is she going to do with it? How is she going to use that to pursue her true passion, which is music appreciation? Does she have room for humans within that appreciation? Um, her wife, her daughter, um, these other students who look up to her, does she have room for their humanity or is that something that she's willing to throw by the wayside to serve her own needs in her mind to serve this greater need? I thought this was an incredibly fascinating character portrait to that end that touches on all these other elements you've mentioned and Mm -hmm. may in some responses overshadow what is at the root of this movie for me. Well, more than a conductor of a marching band, that opening Q&A and that line you reference suggests she's godlike. You don't stop or start without me. She's controlling time in the way an almighty deity might be able to control time. At least that's how it does come off in that moment. And you mentioned being in a sympathetic mindset towards her from the beginning because of her gender. Yes, because what it suggests is knowing the sweep of history as we do, you know in that moment before you even learn anything more about her that it couldn't have been handed to her. Right. It wasn't. It had to be earned. To use my line earlier or to paraphrase, it was something she took and she took it at whatever those costs were. And you talk about power. In my setup, I reference privilege. And I don't mean privilege in the way we maybe normally think about it in terms of She was born with this or something. As we said, she had to take this. And there's some information we learn about her later in the film that corroborates that idea. But it's privilege that comes with asserting yourself and putting yourself in such a position of authority and power that you can essentially get away with whatever you want. And where the humanity does come into this movie and the performance is in the guilt that I do think she expresses or that I think comes out through some of her behavior and actions in the film. A movie I thought about quite a bit. I'm going to reference two movies here, even though I want to be clear. I think this film is absolutely its own singular piece of art. But one film I couldn't shake was the Michael Haneke film, Cachet which Mm. is very much about privilege and power and oppression and guilt. And this idea of being haunted, maybe not knowing why, but being haunted and actually having some kind of presence that seems to be watching you or tormenting you, that is happening to Lydia in this film. We see that where she's waking up in the night and things are out of place or the metronome's ticking seemingly inexplicably. Another movie I thought about, and this is a more obvious one, is something like Whiplash, the Damien Chazelle film. Less explicitly here, but like that film, Tar wants us to consider the costs of greatness for the artist determined to achieve it and those who suffer under that determination. What's permissible? What's off limits? Field isn't interested in any easy answers. And that ambiguity is what I find so fascinating about the film, especially the more distance I've gotten from it. I think with Lydia, I could easily play prosecutor and I could go through a litany of things she says or does that clearly position her as a monster. 
You could walk out of this film feeling that way about her unequivocally. And then I could just as easily, Josh, play defense attorney and counter those charges with positive or at least neutral behaviors and, and actions or just due to a lack of hard evidence. There's reasonable doubt is what I'm saying in a lot of aspects of this film and her character. And the fact is, I don't care whether Lydia is a good or a bad person, just as I don't think Field does. That's not interesting. What I care about is the complexity. And yes, the word we both use, the humanity with which Blanchett and Field present her with all of those flaws and frailties. It's acting 101 that you don't pass judgment on your characters. You can't. You can't properly play them if you're doing that. And similarly here, in terms of writing this character and directing Blanchett's performance, Field doesn't exonerate Lydia, nor does he explicitly punish her to keep that courtroom analogy going, I suppose. He leaves it up to us. He leaves it up to us as the jury. It's there for our own interpretation. Time is the thing. Uh-huh. Time is, is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. Now, my left hand shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means that time stops. Now, the illusion is that, like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real time, making the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. I do think she would be her own worst witness, however, in such a case. And, And, you know, it's that the expressions, the way she lets the guilt seep out to the surface, and this does get us to the performance I I think this is really a quintessential Blanchett character here because she is imposingly regal. She's too perfect to be true. And you only know that because she's clenching this world so tightly that it's going to crack. And that's a through line I see in so many of her performances. Blanchett has played plenty of vulnerable women. It's not that she's always, you know, this completely commanding figure. But I can't think of many. There's probably one or two who are openly, willingly vulnerable in in a way. And she almost here and a lot of her characters kind of demand to be broken. That, that's what's going to happen to them in the course of the movie. And are you Lydia, almost suggesting a sense of masochism? Yes. I, yeah. Yes. I think you I think there is that at play mm-hmm. here. And it's a through line through a lot of her characters. And as far as Lydia Tyre is concerned, you know, she can't conceive of herself as being weak. This is why the podium is where she comes alive. She's in command there. She exudes strength. She exudes confidence, assurance. Um, She's conducting, as we've said, not just the instruments, but time itself when she's up there. And there is a touch later in the film. This is after things have started to spiral for her. But she suffers this symbolic fall. She's running up some stairs and suffers this fall, gets her face scraped up bloody when she gets back to the podium for rehearsals the next day or a couple days later she's bruised and she's battered she conducts more ferociously than than ever and she's reclaiming that power in that place after she's been made vulnerable she's going to try to assert herself again in the one place she knows that she can and that's just one of those little touches that 
um, I think makes this such a rich movie. It's something that doesn't necessarily advance the plot. Mm-hmm. There is something of a mystery plot at play here, but the film does not rush towards it at all. It's very muted in many ways. Instead, it drops these revelations about her character in little touches like that and how she comes back and just, you know, throws her baton down like a machete um, in defiance of being actually hurt. That's how she's responding to it. And so I do think for Blanchett, I can see looking back at her other characters, why this one would appeal and why, you know, it might not be, I don't know if it will go down as her best, but maybe, maybe her defining performance. Yeah, it should be in the conversation. I think that's a great call out by you. I remember that scene vividly. And at the time I thought of it as just being tied to that particular movement or that part of the symphony that she was performing and conducting on that day. But you're right, the timing and the context of that can't be overlooked. And I think you express very well what makes this performance so remarkable. I'll just add just how physical of a performance it really is. And that scene's a perfect example, but there are a lot of examples like that. It would be really, really hard to pull off this movie with a Lydia Tarr who isn't as convincing as Blanchett is. You can't fake this. Someone who is this talented, this accomplished, someone who's that revered that she can get away with the things she gets away with, she has to exude all of that. It has to be natural. Now, it's completely a performance, not only by Blanchett, but by Lydia Tarr. Everything about her is a creation, which I'll touch on a little bit more in a second, but it doesn't work. The illusion doesn't work for us as moviegoers or for the other characters in the film who surround her if that confidence isn't natural. And even the actual conducting itself, we have to believe after that setup, that opening scene, we have to believe that she's capable of anything on that stage. And I can only imagine the amount of work that Blanchett had to do, the amount of training she had to do to be able to hold those moments in front of the orchestra and in front of us again as the audience and make us believe that she is that godlike figure who is stopping and starting time and who everything depends on. I've mentioned it now one or two times, but I actually really do love that opening scene. It catches you so off guard. Really, we're we're actually watching Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker have a sit down. It's a Q&A and it's 10 minutes long or whatever. And we're just going to listen to them talk. But all of those accolades, all of those credits, it functions in a couple of really effective ways. It shows us how meticulously crafted that persona is, partly because we see prior to that her waiting in the wings And we see some of her tics and behaviors as she's reacting to some different things, I think, that are happening in the crowd and how she gets into character, how she transforms that moment before she then goes out and completely commands the stage. She's not conducting. She doesn't have the podium. But even from that chair, she's completely owning it. And you get the sense from Blanchett's performance that she's almost reciting something previously scripted or rehearsed she has a line in the film where she says that the real discovery comes in rehearsal and i can imagine her actually rehearsing all of that or having done 
that dialogue, had those same questions before that now she can just knock it out like it's a metronome. But that doesn't mean that the performance she's giving on stage answering those questions isn't any less meaningful or insightful. And then the real indicator, Josh, is the moment where Field cuts to Merlot, her assistant. I was just going to bring this up. Yeah, she's, she's mouthing, mouthing the, the words. words. Yeah. She's mouthing the words. I think that Gopnik is saying in the intro. It's of his It's of his bio of Lydia. Exactly. But it speaks to your point that this is something that they have. It's part of her control. They are as much, she and that's her it. assistant are as much in control of this Q&A as he is. Yes, that's And it. that's what that tells us. Right. Gopnik, he's unwittingly part of the performance yeah. as he recites it back as precisely as they have given it to him. And then it also gives you right from the beginning, the arc of the film. You mentioned this sense that she's going to crack. Well, Josh, where else does she have to go from the beginning, but down? She has achieved more than most artists ever could have dreamed more than she surely initially imagined. And she's on the verge of pulling off what should be the capstone to her career, recording Mahler's fifth. And she spends all that time in the Q and a talking about that. And I don't remember the exact terms, but she in doing so will have completed kind of a cycle of Mahler's work. I think recording all the, the symphonies. So once you've done that, where do you go? Where do you go from there? And that doesn't excuse anything she says or does, but you can understand anyway, how reckoning with all that, a character in her position who's put herself in that position, a character reckoning with all of that compounded then by other external factors could end up spiraling. Yeah. She feels she deserves, it's crossed the threshold where she feels like she has deserved this partly because she has worked so hard, had to overcome things that maybe other male conducting students didn't many years ago. But at this point it's become a term of, ownership for her, this status that she has. And there's no humility to the character, which I think connects back to that vulnerability idea. And these are all things that Blanchett gives in the performance. You know, she gives us, it's not just a two-way performance of command and then hinting when the camera is looking and the audience isn't at vulnerability, you know, at her weaknesses or at her her guilt. We've been describing it as mm-hmm. guilt, right? It's much more layered. It's oscillating between those two places in fascinating ways. And I think, you know, as a director, I think Field is very much assisting her performance with the camera beyond what he's given in the screenplay here. It's this is a movie that is very intricately constructed, but it's not showy. There are maybe a few flourishes here or there, but mostly the camera needs to be where it needs to be for Blanchette to have the space that she needs. There's Mm. this soliloquy scene in this masterclass she gives at Juilliard. And this is kind of the first, you know, piece of the of the wall to crumble where she goes off when a young student expresses, a student of color expresses what we've been talking about, you know, disinterest in the old white masters, he says. And she just tears into this kid, right? And another, someone videotapes this or gets it on their phone and it goes viral, clips of it go viral. But that scene is filmed almost entirely, at least when Blanchette is really getting going in a single take. Yeah. And I felt like it was. I remember, I'll just say briefly that I jotted down in my notes, was this a single take? It didn't really hit me until near the end of the scene. And that tells you something about how 
non-ostentatious Correct. it is, and yet you do eventually pick up on it. It or at least serves. I did. Yeah. It serves the purpose of again putting Lydia in complete command of mm-hmm. the moment without taking us out of the moment. And I think that's a very delicate balance to have as a director. And I believe, you know, within the entire sequence, it's quite long. There are a couple of cuts, but there is a there's a healthy section in there where she is just, you know, letting these students have it and the camera is following her and letting her have the space that she needs. But, you know, this is another filmmaking element that I guess we probably should have known would be just as crucial. And you've touched on this with the haunting sounds that are throughout. The sound design in this movie is so crucial, not just the classical music and the way it's it's used very muscularly in this film that I think also echoes how Lydia Tower carries herself when we get that, that classical music, but also these mysterious noises. The one movie that popped into my head was um, the Tilda Swinton film Memoria from yeah, Peter no, Pong. I thought of it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with these bizarre, mysterious yep. um, sounds. That they end up being very different things, I think, in both of those movies. But in terms of their early haunting presence and what each of those sounds carries, the one I just want to mention without giving away, for me, it was one of the the most emotionally affecting details in the film. And it has to do with the flat Lydia has separate from this vast industrial home space she shares with her wife and daughter. She also has this flat, which we learn is one she got when she first came to Berlin. She goes there to be by herself. There's a piano. She works on her music there. And we hear these almost chimes. It's like two notes that are very faint in the Mm -hmm. distance. And at first, we're not sure if... Is this inspiration? Because she looks up and she's trying to compose a piece herself and she plays the two notes on the piano. And you're wondering, is this something that's coming to her that she's going to then compose? But no, we understand it's coming from somewhere else and it's bothering her as all these other noises do, right? right. The refrigerator hum in her house or um, the vent in her car, you know, the air vent in her car, these sorts of things. These are all auditory thorns pushing further under her skin. And when we reveal... When the movie reveals what those chime tones are, I found that to be devastating and connecting back with it's it's shoving in her face that question I posed earlier. Do you have any room in your genius for humanity? Is is there anything here that you might need to step outside of yourself and do something for another person? And the revelation of that sound forces her to answer that question. And she both meets the challenge and then later fails it in ways we'd have to talk about in spoiler that I think are as crucial to pronouncing a sentence on her, if this movie does, as anything we learn about her former students, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in terms of the sound, I don't remember or I haven't looked up the exact term for it, but she does seem to suffer from whatever that condition is where repeated noises and I don't have her genius, nor do I have her level of sensitivity, but I do personally feel that and experience that quite a bit myself, the repetition of certain sounds and noises that can get a little overwhelming for me. And you imagine someone like her, someone who has that extreme sensitivity, if you've had that your entire life and just the sounds of the world around you overwhelm you and oppress you in that way, how chaotic and out of control must things 
feel for you. And so what are you going to do? You are going to try to assert your control constantly. You're going to try to be the one who controls those sounds. It does make some sense in terms of her character and where she ends up. And you talk about the sound design, some of the visuals, the score here, Hildur Gunadotter does the composing here, all really does add this eerie kind of texture. I love the scenes we cut to repeatedly of the car that she's in, where through the tunnels seems to be yeah the tunnels. You're in these tunnels. It seems to be probably early in the morning, but not always. There's no one else on the road. And whatever the sound is, it's almost that absence of sound where you're keenly aware of just kind of the hum. And that that actually doesn't make it soothing at all. It, it's just the opposite. It's a little bit disturbing. And Field returns to that motif again and again. I want to go back to something, too, that Field clearly chooses to do or not do. And it goes to this notion of the ambiguity and how we feel about her character. You walk out, and I think it'd be very easy to assume, playing prosecution again, that clearly she has groomed some of these women. She's abused them. She's taken advantage of them. She's had sexual relationships with them that she probably shouldn't have. And that is possibly true. Maybe even it's probably true. But isn't it telling, Josh, that I can't remember a single moment of real sensuality or any depiction of sex that happens at any point in this film. I I think it's notable how dispassionately field portrays these relationships because then it makes you at least ask the question, well, then what is she driven by? What, what is she doing to these women? What does she need to sort of consume? What does she need to take from these women? Is it just about power? Maybe it is. Is it something to do with their youth? Maybe that's it too. Again, she's, she's at this point in her career, middle age. She's about to achieve everything she ever set out to achieve. And she somehow, you know, like in a fairy tale, the evil witch who needs the, the life force of some of these characters. But is it actually something a little bit even more abstract? And I think it could be all of these things, Josh. That, again, is kind of the magic of the film. But does it actually lie in their talent? And her wanting yeah, to that's where I was going to go and wanting to harness it. You know, we see that she, in the cellist, Olga. You do. She she has this relationship of sorts with Olga. And I think you can watch moment after moment where you would say, oh, that's improper. Even what she does with the initial audition where she knows it's her. She gets a peek at her boots. It's supposed to be a blind audition, but she knows that she is ultimately recommending the woman she saw walk into the bathroom. She saw what she looks like when she ultimately decides the piece that is going to be featured alongside the main piece. When they do this performance, she decides to feature the cello. Everything about it seems wrong. Seems like she's just favoring her new pet, but then nobody denies she's nobody denies that nobody denies that the piece is great. And that her playing isn't great. It, it's unimpeachable, the decisions she makes in terms of the music. You can't argue with those choices, at least in the way the movie presents them. So you're, you're left kind of marveling and despising her 
audacity and her seeming selfishness. And then you go, oh, but it's it's also serving the music. Yeah. And that's how she would justify it. I think one of the things the movie is interested in is how these sorts of abuses, obviously, they take place in more you know, white collar sort of industries. But these abuses can also be incredibly complicated when you're trying to draw professional boundaries as part of a creative partnership. And part of what you're doing is not, you know, just making a sale like you're building, you're creating something together. And the sort of passions that are shared in that process are steps closer to sort of the passions that Lydia indulges in than maybe in a different scenario. And this is in some ways you could read this, you know, film as exactly what has happened throughout history in the movie making industry. Right. And the field has just chosen to set it in a different artistic venue. Um, but I think that's one of the things the movie is struggling with or asking us to struggle with is how do you keep up these professional boundaries when what you're working on is so intimate and so tied to emotion? Um, you know, there's another later bit where she talks about music being the only way, I don't think she says this, but it's hinted, the only way she can access feeling emotion is through music. And so then what happens when this is what this, this cellist Olga does for her. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's all part of the complication here. And it's something that Tyre, the movie, is forcing us to wrestle with. I think we have a little different reading, you know, going back to your your courtroom scenario. If I had a disappointment in the film, it's because I think it does take a fairly pronounced position on Lydia in its final minute or two, and I won't spoil this, but I, 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 I'm guessing you had a very different reaction. I have to say, I was, I was kind of, I'll say, disappointed in the movie, which sounds just like a critic phrase, but, but personally, kind of hurt by where the movie left her. And that's not to say I wanted her to be exonerated or proven um, that. Or even left more in the dark. I was pretty convinced she was, unlike you, I was pretty convinced she was guilty of just about everything that had been accused of her. And this movie was forcing her, was accounting her reckoning for that. And then we get this final, you know, 10, 15 minutes. We're not quite sure what is going on, where she is, no. what she's up to. It's a kicker. It's a kicker we get at the end. <laughs> it's a kicker. And I found it to be a little self-satisfied a little arch and this is all compared to the deep feelings that the movie has otherwise evoked it, it's i i agree it's an undeniably funny very clever turning of the screw but i thought it was a little too bitter and almost too vindictive um considering how much the movie had asked us to invest in this woman despite her failings despite her considerable failings it wanted us to recognize those i think i just thought the movie cared for her more than where it left her and it, it struck me as it struck me as the wrong note. Yeah, it's a little bit ironic because I felt like I was actually a little bit more charitable to her throughout the movie, perhaps than you were. And then at the end, I feel like she got everything she deserved. But even that I don't really mean. And what I mean when I say that is. But that's how the movie what, treats it. That what, is how the movie treats yeah, it. But. I don't know that we have a disagreement, especially as we haven't tried to really articulate it because we don't want to spoil it and we will not spoil it. I don't know if we really see the ending differently. I'll just say I love every bit of it. And I love it partly because I don't actually purport to know 
really where I think the movie falls with it or where I should fall with it. What I think is true, the only thing I can say I think is true is it seems to make total sense for her character. Yeah, I'm not saying it's unrealistic. To me, it makes sense. Well, I don't know if it's realistic. I would say it's not realistic at all. I would say it's true to her character. Yeah. Yeah, we're saying the same thing. But to end there felt smug. And this was not a movie that was smug about these very complicated things it had been exploring for almost three hours. Um, it just it just hit a little bit of a false note at the yeah, end. Yeah, no, I, I can absolutely see the smug argument. And then at the same time, I think it opens up some more fascinating questions to walk out of the theater with. So in that way, feels like it's serving the audience. Can I just end with my little pet theory about one really minor part of the film? Calling it even a theory is giving it way too much weight. Sure. But I still want to throw it out there just to see what you or anybody else thinks. And it ties back to this idea of, again, how we judge her, what we make of her character, her guilt. Field multiple times shows us anagrams. There's a moment where Lydia, she's in the midst of this crisis with the former student of hers who is now, it seems, out to get her. And She's on a plane, I think, or she's in the car and she's scribbling in a notebook and she takes her name. She takes the character's name, Krista, and she rearranges it to at risk. Later, she, I think it's at, no, it's not Krista's place. It's another character's place. And that character, who's now mad at Lydia, has taken her name Tar and rearranged it to Rat, Mm -hmm. right? So this idea very clearly suggested from that this character having those negative feelings is saying Lydia is something of a rat. And for us to see that twice, to see two different moments of anagrams made me think, well, you know, field isn't playing around here. There must really be some kind of purpose and meaning to everything. Well, how about the fact that her name is Lydia? What does Lydia rearrange to? It rearranges to at least one word I can think of, which is daily. Is it by design that she's a daily rat that, that she's got within her that Field's kind of just hinting if we, if, we, if we pick up on it, that he's hinting that that's kind of the central crux of this almost in some way is that that battle every day that's waging inside her to be this, this pillar of greatness that she aspires to be and have the respect of everyone, but also succumbing to all of her urges and wants and desires and having it destroy her. Very possible, though, though, remember, that's not her real name. There's which, that really yes. interesting scene, which, which only more proves my point. We probably the fact that the fact that she chose it. I forget what her name is, but yeah, it's she Linda. has a scene with it's what is it again? Linda. Linda. Yes, that's right. Where where she reconnects very briefly with her brother, which is, uh, again, one of those, I think, two minute scenes that the movie didn't necessarily need, but tells us so, so much, so much. Yeah, it's a good one. Tar is out now in limited release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Up next, Christian Bale, for the second time, plays a character with a glass eye. Oh boy. Our review of Amsterdam is next, plus a new, very specific film spotting poll about seasonal stop motion animation. Stay with us.
Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. Well, you didn't do anything to me. I just don't like you no more. You didn't like me yesterday. Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson in the trailer for Martin McDonough's The Banshees of Inisherin, which plays in limited release starting next weekend. And next week, here on Film Spotting, we might have a review of Banshees. We might talk about Ruben Oslin's Triangle of Sadness. Who knows? Maybe we'll do a top five. I threw out, we could, in light of, especially you saying in the previous segment, Josh, that this might be a career-defining performance for one of our best actresses ever, Kate Blanchett. We could do a top five of her best performances, and you even threw out possibly looking at Brendan Gleeson's career. I think he deserves it. I think that'd be fun. Obviously, Blanchett deserves it. I mean, that's one we probably should have thought of a while ago and prepared for mm-hmm. and paired the curator in me. You know, Adam wants to have that list with our tar review. I know at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter when we actually run it. But yeah, either of those sounds like uh, it would have potential. Maybe listeners have other ideas. Yeah, we could at this point, too. And I never would have thought this, even though I really liked him in Tigerland, there was certainly a point in Colin Farrell's career where I never would have thought I would be sitting here suggesting we should do a top five or 10 best Colin Farrell performances. But that's how highly I think of the actor. We certainly could pull that off. Sam has in our notes here, maybe top five movies about friendship. We actually did that top five, but many moons ago, I think actually March or May 07. We did wow. that top five way pre Josh. So at the certainly right of the film spotting era almost. That's right. Ripe to revisit if we did want to go down that path. Once we decide what we're going to do, we'll update the episodes page at filmspotting.net. And if it's a top five, you can count on us asking for your assistance over on Twitter and Facebook. If you've got a better idea than anything we mentioned, we always would love to hear those ideas. Send us a note, feedback at filmspotting.net. We did want to note the passing of movie, TV, and theater legend Angela Lansbury, 96 years old, Josh. Oscar nominated for her first screen role, 1944's Gaslight with Ingrid Bergman. Three Oscar noms total, including a Best Supporting nod for a really wonderful performance in movie. Just terrifying as Mrs. Iceland in 1962's The Manchurian Candidate. Among Lansbury's last films, nearly 80 years after her first, was 2018's Mary Poppins Returns. She had 100 movie credits in all. She was the voice, of course, of Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast. 
Also appeared in 1971's Bed Knobs and Broomsticks with Elvis in Blue Hawaii with Judy Garland in The Harvey Girls. Can't really recommend either of those two films too strongly, but think about this career. Then you go to TV, and this is where I will always think of Angela Lansbury, Adam, Murder, She Wrote, where she played mystery writer turned sleuth Jessica Fletcher. Tell you what, when that was on, no one was getting near the TV because my mom was the <laughs> biggest Murder, She Wrote fan. She just loved the show. I remember fondly watching many episodes with her. You couldn't fool Jessica, Adam. You just could not fool her. I have never seen an episode. You know what? I was texting with uh, my sisters and dad today about this, and right away my dad was like, the reruns are on Peacock. You can watch them on Peacock. So there you go. Get into it, Adam. <laughs> but what a career when you think about it. It's almost like a Forrest Gump style career that she had or took part in so many of these seminal movies. She was so good in Gaslight. And, you know, I saw her well after I had already known her in Murder, She Wrote. So playing this heartless tart to see her, you know, young and saucy was a bit of a shock in Gaslight. And then, as you said, Manchurian Candidate, she's absolutely venomous. And who, you know, who doesn't love Mrs. Potts? So wonderful career. Well, speaking of tarts, Sophie, the younger generation, well, at least weird Daughters like mine who are obsessed with musical theater in Sondheim, she knows her as Mrs. Lovett. Oh, Sweeney Todd. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Sweeney Todd, R.I.P. Angela Lansbury. We are excited about the fact, Josh, that we have another trivia spotting approaching our 23rd edition of Virtual Trivia with film spotting listeners run by the amazing quiz master Thomas Todd. Friday, November 4th is the date, 7.30 p.m. Central Time. We've talked about it a lot here on the show. I'm guessing there are a lot of people out there who have thought about it, but not taken the plunge. They're they're nervous about their trivia prowess. Again, we've joked about it. You do not have to have much trivia prowess to have a good time. You can look at us as evidence of that. We always have an amazing time with listeners and our special guests. You might have someone like Michael Phillips, a Dana Stevens, someone who's a friend of the show, a special guest you love to hear, maybe someone who hasn't been on the show before, but is a notable critic or writer. They might be your guest captain on Trivia Spotting. So we hope you'll join us. Proof of our lack of prowess, I think, Adam, after 22 Trivia Spottings, we're both sitting, each sitting on one win. Is one that win. right? Yeah. One so win. You don't want either of us as your captain. No, for trivia spotting tickets and info, go to filmspotting.net. It is open to the public, though our family members do get a discount on those tickets. Filmspotting.net for trivia spotting tickets. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's part two of their unvarnished sleuth pairing. They'll be discussing Confess Fletch. Earlier, they talked about Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, so now they'll be making some connections between those two films. I think Adam and I both feel one quite a bit better than the other. Your next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. In place of a dark lord, you would have a queen! Not dark, but beautiful and terrible as a dawn! Treacherous as the sea! Stronger than the foundations of the earth! All shall love me and despair! 
Kate Blanchett there really taking these film spotting poll results a little bit too seriously. <laughs> She's in The Fellowship of the Ring, that scene, one of the titles that may have given her the edge in our recent poll. We asked our listeners this despicable question. Choose one, Kate Blanchett, Tilda Swinton. That's it. That's the question. How did it come out, Josh? Blanchett took it with 55% of the vote. And yeah, maybe you're right, Adam. Maybe it was just a matter of her being in films that were more popular over the years. It also makes me want to ask you this question. I think it came up when we first introduced this poll. How interchangeable, which is a word we shouldn't apply to either of these actors, mm-hmm. might they be in each other's roles? Tilda Swinton as Lydia Tarr? You could see it, right? Of course. Yeah. I was thinking about it, at least initially, watching the film. Again, as we've stressed, a very different Lydia Tarr. Yeah. But in terms of meeting the demands that that role requires, Mm -hmm. totally capable. Yep. Stephen Hill says, I'll just insert the obligatory, you monsters. And hey, we are complicit. There's no doubt. We allowed it. We read it on air. We put it out there into the world. But, you know, Sam's the real monster, everybody. Just remember that. Always blame Sam. We also heard from Jeremy Webner Berman. This was an agonizing poll. I will see any movie just to witness either of these outrageously talented actresses' performance. However, I'm going to vote Kate. I think I just like her movies a little bit more. Plus, she has the all-time best and funniest episode of Documentary. Now, to her credit, it's the Waiting for the Artist episode where she stood in for performance artist Marina Abramovich. I really like that documentary, and I like the spoof of the documentary that Blanchett does. So I'm with you there, Jeremy. We have another Jeremy, though this one's spelled with a J. Jeremy Laffery, he says, love Kate, but it's got to be Tilda. And this is tough to argue with, Josh. I understand why you went with Tilda, a regular troop member of Wes Anderson, the Coen brothers, Jim Jarmusch, and Bong Joon-ho. In keeping with regular film spotting incinerator logic, I love the Lord of the Rings trilogy and Carol as much as the next guy, but I can't lose the Grand Budapest Hotel, Only Lovers Left Alive, Hail Caesar, and both the souvenir and its sequel all in one fell swoop. Plus, just for some spice, Tilda's just a better actress. Well, he just throws Jeremy. that in at the end. <laughs> yeah, that's some spice. That he's is working, he's working with sound logic and then he has to get nasty. Ah, uh, I mean, that is that is a blazing hot take, Jeremy. Here's Andrew Howell. Kate is patient. Kate is kind. Kate does not envy. Kate does not boast. Kate is not proud. Kate does not dishonor others. Kate is not self-seeking. Kate is not easily angered. And Kate keeps no record of wrongs. Kate does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Carol, Hella, Phyllis Schlafly, Jasmine, Catherine Hepburn, Kate Wheeler, and Galadriel. I love them all. Henrik <laughs> Hansen says, are we absolutely sure they aren't the same person? They are that good. I mean, she. She is good enough to be both, adopting different personas, like David Bowie. Just throwing it out there. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Maybe they're all Bowie. Yeah. Is it possible? He never this, left. This is all Bowie is still with us. One more comment here from Down Under Dan. I've enlisted in many a monstrous film spotting poll, but finally, finally, I find myself a conscientious objector. Wow. Kate Blanchett and Tilda Swinton have both been nothing but good to us. I'd take my own metaphorical life before I pointed the metaphorical gun at either one of these perfect creatures. Okay. I can't argue with your reasoning there at all, Dan. Thank you to everyone who participated in that little bit of insanity and for leaving a comment. Our new poll is another showdown of sorts. Not nearly as hard, or I don't think it is anyway, Josh, as Blanchett versus Swinton, but 
it may be tougher for you and for a certain segment of our audience. Yes, I'm talking 90s kids here. Oh my, we're going to we're going to rouse the 90 kids. They're out there. The poll looks ahead to the release of Wendell and Wild, the latest stop motion creation from director Henry Selick. It comes to Netflix at the end of this month. The question is, here we are again, choosing one, but it seems like, I don't know, you guys are being nicer. I missed this part of the slack. We've decided to give the incinerator a break. We're just going with an impenetrable vault. I think, yeah, I think the incinerator is, uh, it's undergoing upkeep repairs to get ready for film spotting madness. I think this time of year, that's what happens to it. That's what's happening. Goes off okay. to the shop. So the choices are this, Wes Anderson's The Fantastic Mr. Fox. Or Henry Selleck's feature-length debut, 1993's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Now, I actually don't know how you feel about the Henry Selleck film, but I know how you feel about the fantastic Mr. Fox. And I just don't envision that I live in a world where you're going to put fantastic Mr. Fox in an incinerator or a vault or any kind of box or confinement whatsoever. Yeah, putting it in a vault from October through December sounds just ridiculous though if i look on my site i do have similar four to four star ratings for both of these films really adore nightmare before christmas one of maybe the the early entrees into modern stop motion for me it was always something that mesmerized me you know when you when you look at some of the Harryhausen stuff way from decades ago but in terms of the modern art form nightmare before christmas was it and to lose that, I can't imagine, even for a brief period of time. So the logic I'm going to try to apply here, you're right. It's going to be Mr. Fox. But the way now, I'm think- why are you drawing this out, Josh? The way I'm thinking about this <laughs> is I have to rationalize it. We have a lot of, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas. It's a Halloween movie and a Christmas movie. We've got a lot of Halloween movies. We have a lot of Christmas movies. We don't have a lot of Thanksgiving movies. That's to me is what fantastic Mr. Fox is. So for that reason alone, I think I need to have it. I'm sorry. Sorry to uh, Jack Skellington. Now, I don't remember that movie, fantastic Mr. Fox, nor do I adore it as much as you do though on my rewatch with my two oldest kids during COVID as we took a look at Anderson's entire oeuvre, I did really like the fantastic Mr. Fox and liked it more than I did on initial viewing. But Am I misremembering something? Does it end with a Thanksgiving dinner? Is it is it really a Thanksgiving film? Well, here we heard from Kevin H on this very point, Adam. So so let me share this. Nightmare is an easy choice for Kevin. Not because I like it better, but because I don't associate watching Mr. Fox with a particular season at all. I mean, I get why it would be an autumnal favorite. It's just never held that place in my mind. Is that just me or is Sam the crazy one? So you're with Kevin. Maybe. Or maybe I'm just not remembering the film well enough, but Sam is definitely trying to position these two films together as sort of of the season, the Halloween movie versus the Thanksgiving film. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, I don't remember if they ever mentioned Thanksgiving in Fantastic Mr. Fox. There is a, a crucial gathering of the extended family around right. a table scene. That's what I've sort of had it's, in mind. Yeah. And and I mean, if this was on my mind back when it came out, I for the day job at Think Christian, I wrote a piece all about Fantastic Mr. Fox and the role of greed around the time of Thanksgiving, Advent, the whole holiday season, and how it's a movie deeply concerned with greed, as the role Dow book was before it, and what that means um, 
around this time of year. So to me, it's it struck me that way right from the beginning. Sounds like Sam's on the same page. We'll see if that affects how listeners vote in this poll. Yeah, you can vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. Maybe next week we'll do our top five Thanksgiving movies that aren't really Thanksgiving movies. Love it. Love is funny. We need someone to help us to find the truth. My friend was killed because of something monstrous that he had seen. This is all turning out to be a lot larger than any of us. You're going to have to take my lead getting out of this. I had to stab a guy. I had to hit a lady with a brick one time. What? It's a long story, but with you two, it'll be a cakewalk. That's from the trailer for David O. Russell's Amsterdam, which opened in wide release to very little business last weekend, despite having a huge ensemble of familiar faces. At the top of the bill of this 1930s set film are Margot Robbie and John David Washington, along with Russell veteran Christian Bale. Washington and Bale's characters witness a murder. They become suspects themselves and along the way, quote, uncover one of the most outrageous plots in North American history, unquote. Adam. You've noted before that we did have a heated debate over Russell's American hustle back in the day. By back in the day, I mean 10 years ago. Do you want do you want to just pause and <laughs> I know. think about how old that makes you feel? So we split on that. I was a big fan. You didn't care for it at all. How did that affect you coming into Amsterdam? Let's let's talk about let's start with Russell and his filmography, maybe. Is this someone you ever were on the same wavelength with? Did you fall off at some point? Where have you been with him and uh where did you land with Amsterdam? I was certainly ready for a David O. Russell redemption project. That's what I was hoping this would be. And when I think back on American Hustle, and I don't really want to think back on that conversation many years ago, but we did that thing where we pitted it against The Wolf of Wall Street, and that was a movie I loved that you didn't care for, and I feel like that actually kind of shaded the American Hustle conversation. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't a fan of it. I just don't remember hating it as much as I loved The Wolf of Wall Street, if that makes sense. So with that acknowledged, I'm looking at Russell's filmography, and I... I don't think I've seen Spanking the Monkey. I thought I had, but I don't think I have. Yeah, I have me seen either. Flirting with Yeah, I've seen Flirting with Disaster. I like it. Three Kings in 99. That's among my top five films of 99. I might have even listed it on a previous film spotting year by year top five as my favorite film of 99. So once that movie happened, I was like, oh, David O. Russell, this guy, I'm going to follow him to the ends of the earth. Yeah. And then I Heart Huckabees was disappointing in that it wasn't on the level of three Kings for me at all, but I still could appreciate how totally nuts it yeah, was. Unique voice. Yeah. But after that, it's been diminishing returns. I was mixed to negative on the fighter silver linings playbook, American hustle. I know generally those movies were all well-regarded, not by me. We talked about them on the show, all three of them. And then I didn't even bother to see joy. I think you talked about it here on the show with a guest host. I was off that week. And I never felt compelled to catch up with it, Josh. So for me, it really is a matter of hoping at some point we're going to get back to the David O. Russell of Huckabees and especially Three Kings. And I would love to sit here and say that that's what happened here with Amsterdam. But alas, it did not. That's it. I just came from the film actually about an hour and a half ago. I wouldn't exactly say I'm still processing it. I don't think the movie demands quite that much scrutiny, but 
I will note that for most of its running time, I was kind of charmed by it. And I was watching it maybe a little bit like you were watching Don't Worry Darling, just a little bit incredulous going like, really, all these negative reviews? Like, it's a little scrambled and a little bit messy, but it's kind of charming. I was enjoying it on that level just because of the central relationship and the performances, which I think after a few scenes, I got on the right wavelength with. And I liked the Bale, Washington, Robbie dynamic well enough. And then I didn't know it was Emmanuel Lubetsky until the end of the film, but I wasn't surprised to see his name yeah. as the director of photography, because I certainly noted the lush cinematography of this period piece. And that was kind of enough, even though I don't remember being really amused by any of the humor whatsoever. The mystery of it with those performances, with the cinematography was kind of carrying me through. And then you, you get to that last 30 minutes or so that last 20 minutes. And wow, you've already had the sense in a number of scenes. And I know David O. Russell has historically enjoyed kind of that improvisational approach and feel there. There are some scenes where it definitely looks like they're meticulously scripted and designed. And then you'll cut to another scene and you feel like the actors are making it up in that moment and they're not quite sure where they are. It just doesn't all work. And you get to the end and it feels like in post-production, perhaps they had to make it all fit together and have some poignancy and have really even just some meaning. And unfortunately it comes off as contrived. Yeah. It's the thing is teetering. It's very wobbly right from the start. Then my experience was regains its balance but is still teetering all the way through. And then you get to that section you're talking about and things absolutely collapse. And what I came away from this, I'm a bigger Russell fan, I think fan of his work, I should say, than you historically. I think Joy is the only one I've really disliked. Even tried to do my homework and see Spanking the Monkey, but not streaming anywhere and didn't have time to get it from the library. So um, all that other stuff, I think I've been, you know, if not enthusiastic about mildly positive on. And I thought this might have that charm of something like flirting with disaster and the I heart Huckabees, more of that slapstick screwball sensibility that his films can have. So I'm kind of watching it teeter and thinking, well, this is sometimes what you get when you're trying for this tone and it never entirely clicks and does just fall apart. I came away from it though, just with, with an admiration really for anyone trying to make a movie this big with this sort of tone and how hard it has to be. Cause you have to think there were points. I mean, all these actors signing up for this had to mm-hmm. see something right on the page, even though maybe the script is the source of the trouble. If you looked at it, you could, someone could say, this is not going to work, but it appealed to a lot of people on the set. They must've thought that things were working. And I just got the sense it got put up on the screen. And this was my experience in the showing I was at, which was a mixture of a promotional screening and critics. So it was a fairly big crowd. You know, it was just like a dying balloon when the scenes would come out in, into, and you just, you kind of feel bad. I mean, not, mm-hmm. not all these people are, you know, doing just fine without our accolades, but you kind of feel bad to see the effort up there and to see actors particularly you like. I think, you know, I've made jokes about Christian Bale. And the glass eye, which I think was, you know, a horrible choice for him in the big short. I think he's really funny here. I think um, Russell knows how to get him to click in ways. Mm -hmm. American Hustle, to me, is one of Bale's best performances. And 
I can see how that might have worked. The other actors, I want to ask you this, which is separate from the Russell conversation. Where are we at with John David Washington? Because (laughs) I'm asking myself that every time I watch him. Right? Yeah. Isn't that the experience? Because I think, you know, if you look at his filmography, we both were very impressed with Black Klansman. I think I might have had him, maybe you did too, among the top five performances of that year. Just he clicked with the vibe of that film and you saw someone electric, charismatic, but also playing a real character. And I think we both struggled with him in Tenet. We struggled with Tenet on a number of levels, yeah. but certainly he was not a strength of the film. And that was a question of, is it the movie around him? I really thought he was pretty good in Malcolm and Marie. You saw that charisma I did again. Too. Yeah. I had issues with that film, but they mm-hmm. weren't with him. And you saw that this he's got it. He's got it. And then you hear, I don't know if it's that improvisational, you know, environment you're talking about, but it was very much back to the tenet sort of blank stare type presence. And so I'm completely adrift as to where I am with him. Yeah. I think overall I'm still favorable. And there are Many moments in Amsterdam that work that he delivers. I do think among that trio that both Bale, to your point, and Margot Robbie are just operating on a more naturally theatrical comedic level. Yeah, that's it. And and Washington, he he isn't quite there, or that isn't his skill set. And it goes back to the screwball farce. Yeah, sort of. Pattern pace. I think so. So again, I, for me, he, he wasn't a huge distraction. Certainly not the reason why this movie doesn't work. But Bale and Robbie, I think, are working on a slightly different level than him. So you mentioned Lebeski. I do want to say one thing, and it goes back to the glass eye. I don't know if he took that little bit of character detail that Russell invented uh, and just said, "I'm going to run with it" because you know I don't know what else is. I don't know what these characters are talking about, anyways. <laughs> But I have never seen a film, and I'm going to even count Lubezki's The Tree of Life, where the actor's eyes were so resplendent. Mm. Every character, this is, I mean, talk about Rami Malek, Anya Taylor-Joy, anyone who shows up, whether they're one of these conspirators or one of the people we're supposed to be, you know, rooting for, it doesn't matter. Lubezki finds like the particular tone and color Mm -hmm. of their individual eyes and lights it in a way where I almost was just happy to sit beneath that, (laughs) you know, have the screen project that at me. And maybe it's because I'd given up trying to keep up with, you know, this, this farcical plot that was going on. And it's a frustrating thing too, Adam, because this is a movie that makes you at times feel dumb, but. You always know what's happening. The problem is it keeps explaining to you what you already know and doesn't fill in the things that the narrative needs. It was funny. I I was there with my high school daughter and she, what did she say at the end? Something like, I kept thinking when we got out, she said, I kept thinking maybe I'm not smart enough for this, but then I realized, no, I know what's supposed to be going on. (laughs) So Mm. it's, it's one of those where you feel at a loss and every time you're hoping the movie gives you something, it just kind of baldly states the obvious and doesn't, again, deepen the things that that should be deepened. No, definitely not. And I see what you're saying, but I also think that the ending or the reveal of the mystery or who is behind it 
is telegraphed. Oh, that's what I'm saying. So obvious. <laughs> yeah, it's so obvious. It's and like so you there's... keep thinking there must be more. Right? I know. There's there's no real revelation there at all. And continuing to think there must be more is a good description of the experience I had with this film yeah. too. Like every scene, you just got to keep waiting for there to be some kind of payoff and it just doesn't come unfortunately amsterdam is currently playing in wide release if you see the film and especially if you disagree with us we'd love to hear from you feedback at filmspotting.net josh we've got some work to do figuring out what we're going to do next week here on film spotting but that is it for this show if you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting and I'm at Larson on Film. At filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking you to choose just one of these stop motion, cozy season standbys Fantastic Mr. Fox or The Nightmare Before Christmas. To order show t shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspotting.supportingcast.fm. And you can get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive. Yes, that does go back to 2005. That's at filmspotting.supportingcast.fm. Out in wide release this weekend, Halloween ends. You can see that in theaters. And Peacock on digital, you can see a movie that's playing the Chicago Film Festival that I'm excited about. Raymond and Ray with Ethan Hawke and Ewan McGregor. That's on Apple TV+. Plus. Rosalind, that's with Caitlin Deaver as Romeo Montague's ex. You see where that's going. Directed by Karen Maine. Stars at Noon, the latest from Claire Denis. That stars Margaret Qualley, Benny Safdie, and John C. Riley. And despite that cast... And that director, this movie has been, it seems, completely ignored by its distributor. And the few people I know who have seen it have said it's not good, which is disappointing. We will still try to catch up with whatever Claire Denis does. In limited release, Tar is playing here in Chicago. It's at the Music Box. And yes, if you can see it, you should see it. Next week, yeah, we have some work to do. A lot of films to potentially talk about, including Triangle of Sadness, the Palm Door winner, including Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson and Martin McDonough's new one, Banshees of Inishurin, and lots of top five options as well. We'll have something. We'll have something, Josh. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Betty Lavendero. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.